0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: It's the first time there's ever been a fully secret trial in Australia and we're only finding out the details now, half a decade after it first took place.
2: Peering into a legal black hole. That's coming up shortly here on The Law Report. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. First two big defamation setbacks for the Murdoch empire. In Sydney, Australia, Lachlan Murdoch abandons his legal action against the publisher of the news site Crikey. And in the USA, Fox News settles with election technology company Dominion Voting Systems.
3: We talked about the Dominion software. I know that there were voting irregularities. The machine ran an algorithm that shaved votes from Trump and awarded them to Biden. Just the mere fact that we have a foreign country, we have this in a foreign country, done by friends of an enemy of the United States, Maduro, is outrageous.
2: It's the biggest publicly known defamation payout in US history. Just before the trial started, Fox News agreed to pay almost 1.2 billion Australian dollars to Dominion Voting Systems for claiming the company had rigged the 2020 US presidential election. So what does the settlement mean for Fox News and for all the other companies and individuals who are also being sued for their part in the big lie? Ron Nell Anderson-Jones is a law professor at the University of Utah. Professor Anderson-Jones, what does Dominion Voting Systems do and what was the issue at the heart of this case?
0: The core of this case were 20 separate statements that were made by guests on Fox News or by Fox News personalities in other settings, for example, on Twitter, that suggested falsely that Dominion, which is a voting machines company, had a role in rigging the 2020 presidential election. The core narrative uh, that was advanced in these defamatory statements was that Dominion was invented in Venezuela to rig elections for Hugo Chavez and then uh, was imported to the US to do the same here, to siphon off votes that were cast for Trump and over to Biden. And all of this was, was of course, untrue. It was a a vast conspiracy theory that had been invented. And the claim that Dominion made was that it was false and defamatory and that it cleared the very high constitutional bar set by the First Amendment. Uh, That is, that it was told with knowing falsity or with reckless disregard for the truth. And Dominion said it was prepared to prove that in front of a jury and got very close to doing so and settled truly at the 11th hour, maybe even the 11th hour and 59th uh, minute, right as opening arguments in the case were about to begin.
2: And Dominion argued that these on-air claims caused the company enormous and irreparable economic harm. Essentially, nobody wanted to have anything to do with them as a result of of these allegations.
0: That's right. Uh, one element that D- Dominion bore the burden of proving was this reputational harm, that it was defamed. And the storyline was actually quite powerful, that it had gone from being relatively obscure and in some respects celebrated for um, trying to uh, be a, a technology that was advancing electoral integrity to being quite famous in an infamous sort of way. It became vilified, in, particularly within a, a quadrant of the American Fox viewing population.
2: So the primary question for jurors was whether Fox knowingly spread false information or, or recklessly disregarded the truth to the standard of actual malice. So that was what the jurors would have had to have decided. What was the evidence that convinced Fox that the best course of action was settling?
0: Well, uh, we got a preview of what the jury would have gotten the opportunity to see in motions for summary judgment that were filed before the court.
2: This was back in February.
0: That's correct. Yes, court Uh, quite uh, staggering set of revelations that Dominion made public at that point and that were made public in the court filings of what Dominion said showed knowing falsity within the organization, sort of top to bottom uh, throughout Fox News and Fox Corp. The evidence included uh, text exchanges and internal memos and uh, comments between uh, people within the Fox hierarchy saying things quite directly, like, um, this is a a lie, this is crazy, this is ludicrous, suggesting, in Dominion's view, knowing falsity. Uh, That is, that they had made a conscious corporate decision to tell this lie. And Dominion also wove a really quite powerful narrative about the motive for doing so. That is, it set forth a great deal of evidence that people within the Fox News structure started to see in the aftermath of a network calling the election for Biden that then President Trump uh, was angered by this and that Trump's uh, supporters were angered by this and that those viewers started to gravitate to other news sources elsewhere in the right-wing news ecosystem to seek those conspiratorial lies about the election being rigged and that Fox pivoted its coverage to more of these lies in order to win them back. And that was the claim that was on deck and that was going to be put before the jury if it moved forward. It was such a powerful case, uh, such a powerful body of evidence that it probably motivated Fox uh, to move towards settlement and to offer a a pretty high number there in, in terms of the settlement figure. The interesting piece of this is sort of the question of why Fox wouldn't have settled earlier before all of that embarrassing evidence about what it had said about its sources and what it had said about Trump and what it thought of its own audience became public. Presumably, Dominion itself was motivated by some wider public serving purpose and made a conscious decision not to settle uh, and to move forward and and make the case something of a referendum on election denialism and on disinformation more broadly.
2: But could it have achieved that goal even more if it had gone to trial? Uh, uh, My understanding is one of the strategic reasons that Fox would have settled is because it didn't want to proceed with Fox Chairman Rupert Murdoch and and other Fox executives and presenters taking the stand and being rigorously cross-examined about what they knew and what they did and what they didn't do.
0: Yes, I mean, I think that almost certainly was part of the calculus. I mean, one of the things that I think we have to acknowledge is that juries are unpredictable beasts. And um, this is particularly so in libel cases and might be especially so in a libel case that is this socially and politically divisive. So both parties were in some respects rolling the dice in moving forward on the question of liability, but also on the question of what the damages number would have turned out to be. It seems clear that another piece of the calculus that Fox was making was that if they did move forward with this trial all of that evidence that was sort of in paper form at the earlier stages would be uh, in sort of physical embodiment form at the trial. It would have been key Fox hosts, um, very famous faces from the programming. Rupert Murdoch himself, uh, the judge had confirmed uh, just the week before that he would be on the witness list and that they could compel him to come and that he would have to come in person. And so all of that started to stack up in a way uh, that probably didn't feel great to Fox's lawyers and probably pushed the settlement number upward. Mm.
2: What did we learn from the discovery process and from the pre-trial hearings about Rupert Murdoch?
0: Rupert Murdoch himself was deposed in the course of that discovery. He was asked questions about his role uh, and his thinking about the election. He answered that he didn't think that the election was stolen and he expressed at least some uh, hesitations about whether Fox uh, took the right course of action in the aftermath of the election and in its coverage. He leaned into arguments about um, some of the uh, people who post-Fox programming, being expressors of opinion rather than journalists who were presenting news. But there was some belief on the part of commentators and defamation experts in the U.S. that Dominion may well have been able to connect the dots all the way up the corporate structure, that it may well have been able to convince a jury that Murdoch and and others in the corporate hierarchy were enough responsible for the airing of these specific statements about dominion, had enough of a role in a corporate strategy to convey these lies, that that there could be liability not just for the uh, individual hosts, but also for the corporation more broadly.
2: So, Fox News settled the case for 787 million US dollars, but I think its annual profit is something along the lines of 14 billion US dollars. Is this settlement really just the cost of doing business? Will it change the way that the company operates if its business model is still going strong?
0: Yes, I think that is. I was going to say the million dollar question, and I guess it's the 787 million dollar question and one that the American public is discussing in, um, really significant ways in the aftermath of this. And I, I think the point is well taken that Fox is an incredibly wealthy organization and that it may well be continue to be incentivized. I mean, the underlying premise of this suit is that Fox drove its decision-making about coverage and was sort of motivated by what its audience wanted to hear. And presumably if its audience still craves some of this um, conspiracy, territorial election denialism that gravitational pull will continue to exist that said although this is these are dollars that fox has and can pay it seems like it, it it's certain to alter at least some coverage decisions and uh, this is particularly the case because this is neither the first nor the last of the suits that fox faces over some of these kinds of claims uh, there are other cases from, um, from other voting machine companies there are other individual cases from for example election workers and postmasters and other um, suits that are um, floating about that are not against fox but are also um, focused on this question of election denialism there are individual suits being brought against some of the sources the the individual people Rudy Giuliani and uh, Sidney Powell and other uh, people who were working with or for uh, Donald Trump who voiced some of these statements about the voting machine companies while on air at Fox altogether, the cumulative effect of it may well move the needle at least a bit on the question of how much of this uh, conspiratorial baseless material makes its way to the public on the Fox Airways.
2: Now, in terms of these other uh, defamation cases, which are in the pipeline uh, against people like uh, Trump-connected lawyers, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, and and uh, I think pillow manufacturer and Trump donor, uh, Mike Lindell, and then uh, in individual Fox presenters, uh, and then the other right-wing news outlets, uh, Newsmax and, and One Nation News, the, the companies at the far end of the spectrum to which uh, some of Fox's audience was bleeding because it wasn't sufficiently pro-Trump. What has been revealed in the discovery process of this case, this settled case, and all the pretrial um, processes, has that strengthened these other cases
0: Oh, I think it almost certainly has. Just to take the most prominent of the examples, uh, there's an even larger case brought by another voting machine company called Smartmatic uh, that is a few steps behind this one in terms of its litigation arc, uh, seeking 2.7 billion US dollars. And in many respects, the storyline of that litigation is heavily overlapping to the Dominion case. Uh, the the storyline is that it's the same cast of characters at Fox, uh, so Maria Bartiromo, Jeanine Perrault, and uh, Lou Dobbs, the three prominent hosts from Fox News. And it's the same sources, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, the same uh, Trump-affiliated lawyers who are making uh, the statements on air, uh, who are the source of the complaint in the Smartmatic suit. And in fact, among the things that Smartmatic is complaining about, among the lies that it says that Fox told, was that Fox and Fox's um, guests falsely associated smartmatic with dominion and suggested that they were in cahoots or that one owned the other or that they were affiliated in some way when in fact that was not true smartmatic may have an even sort of stronger case before a jury in terms of its in david and goliath status in here uh, dominion the, the suit that just settled is a much larger uh, voting machine company that had a much heavier role in um, some states that were voting in the presidential election. Smartmatic was only used in one county of one state in that election. And so the argument, any arguments that uh, Fox might put forward that it was just having a general newsworthy conversation about a key machine that was used in the election would fall a little flat in the Smartmatic suit. Uh, so we can imagine that Smartmatic's lawyers are sort of frothing, <laughs> chomping at the bit uh, in the aftermath of the Dominion suit, probably quite anxious to take advantage of much of the information that has been revealed about internal Fox workings and then put it to use in this next round of litigation.
2: University of Utah Professor Ronnell Anderson jones thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report.
0: You're very welcome.
2: Meanwhile, back here in Australia, Fox Corporation CEO Lachlan Murdoch has dropped his defamation action against Crikey for describing the Murdoch family as, quote, unindicted co-conspirators in the US Capitol riots. In a statement, Lachlan Murdoch's lawyer said his client, quote, "...remains confident that the court would ultimately find in his favour. However, he does not wish to further enable Crikey's use of the court to litigate a case from another jurisdiction that has already been settled." and facilitate a marketing campaign designed to attract subscribers and boost their profits, end quote. University of Sydney Professor David Rolfe is one of Australia's leading defamation experts. David Rolfe, how closely connected is the dropping of the Australian litigation to the settlement in the USA?
3: It's closely connected because, obviously... Crikey's position in the Australian litigation was to try and introduce those extraordinary allegations which had come out through the discovery processes in the US litigation. And obviously, the whole purpose of the settlement in the US was to prevent <coughs> those allegations being ventilated in open court, various people within Fox News being cross-examined about them. And so if the purpose of that settlement was to preserve the you know, confidentiality or to sort of minimise the damage done by those allegations, to have Australian proceedings that would ventilate <laughs> those sorts of allegations would just be completely sort of pointless. So there is a you know, very close forensic connection between the two.
2: You're saying from a strategic point of view, there was no point closing everything down in the USA, but then allowing it to re-blossom here in Australia. How significant would this Australian case have been if he had gone to trial in this country?
3: Look, it would have been very significant because one of the sort of central defences in this particular case was the new public interest defence, which came into effect across Australia during July 2021. And we haven't yet had case really concerned with this new public interest defence and how that operates. And so, given the sort of centrality of that defence to this case, the case was obviously going to be important. Uh, Obviously, because you have two large media organisations duking it out against each other, it was fairly high-stakes litigation... But I think what's interesting about the sort of settlement of the Australian or the withdrawal of the Australian proceedings is that it now means that we don't have an adjudication on the public interest defence. We still await that. And to a certain extent, that's obviously in the interests of the Murdoch's media interests in Australia because presumably in most instances those new media interests are going to be the defendants rather than the plaintiffs and they will want to be able to rely upon that public interest defence. Lachlan Murdoch defeating a public interest defence might not necessarily have been that helpful for News Corp defendants in the future.
2: So even if he had won, he would be cutting off his nose to spite his face in, in terms of what this would have meant for the Murdoch Empire?
3: Well, I don't think it would have been particularly helpful because obviously in order to sort of win his proceedings, he'd have to see off a public interest offence. And obviously that has been one of the sort of signal reforms that media outlets have been agitating for for a long time and now they've obviously got one. So you don't necessarily want your first test <laughs> test case to set the parameters of that public interest defence in a way that media outlets are not going to be able to rely upon it fairly readily. So there's obviously another sort of tension here as well.
2: Indeed, private media's or Crikey's chief executive, Will Haywood, claimed victory, saying Mr Murdoch's decision amounted to, quote, a substantial victory for legitimate public interest journalism. Uh, Is that the way you see it, David Rolfe?
3: Clearly, the withdrawal of the defamation proceedings here means that uh, Crikey's story can continue to remain Online, If they wish it to remain online, it's, I think, a very significant sort of back down because there's no actual adjudication on, you know, the merits of the story and the merits of the defence. It is, I think, always the problem with these high stakes defamation litigation. And this is not the only one that we've seen in recent times where parties really raise the stakes it now means that Crack is free to continue engaging in the journalism that they've engaged in and future plaintiffs might think twice before going after them.
2: University of Sydney, Professor David Rolfe, one of Australia's leading defamation experts, thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you. The ACT Supreme Court has released the sentencing remarks in the extraordinary case of Witness J. A former intelligence officer, Witness Jay was put on trial and imprisoned entirely in secret. And it is only now, years after his trial, that we have some understanding of why he was sentenced to two years and two months jail for offences relating to releasing classified information. Kieran Pender, senior lawyer with the Australian Human Rights Law Centre, says secret trials have no place in modern Australia. Kieran Pender, in your view, how troubling is the case of Witness J?
1: The Witness J case is a remarkable case and a deeply troubling case for those who care about Australian democracy. It's the first case which to the best of everyone's knowledge took place in total secrecy. It's the first time there's ever been a fully secret trial in Australia and we're only finding out the details now half a decade after it first took place. That's really worrying that the release of this information uh, by the ACD Supreme Court is long overdue and, and very welcome development coming after a lot of pressure from the media, civil society, and an important report from the independent national security legislation, Monadar. Uh, but, but I think the sort of the, the paradox of this latest development is this is, a, in some respects, an ordinary national security case, but it's extraordinary in the way it was cloaked in such a high level of secrecy, secrecy that it was clearly unnecessary.
2: One of the most interesting details to note was that I understand only his brother and his uncle were allowed to know that he was actually serving time in prison. Even his mother was not allowed to know. So it speaks of the extraordinary secrecy which was um, surrounding this prosecution.
1: It certainly does. And I think it underscores the Kafkaesque nature of this whole thing. You know, I think. The idea that in Australia we have a court system where someone can be imprisoned and not even their own mother knows about it is really a situation that I think most of us would think would never be possible in this country. And that level of secrecy, I think as this judgment shows, as the monitors report shows, was unnecessary. You know, clearly there was some secrecy necessary to protect national interest in this case, but not the level that there was that has seen this you know, shrouded in utmost secrecy for, for half a decade.
2: So cycling back, who is Witness J and what did we learn from reading the sentencing remarks that have just been released?
1: Witness J was an Australian intelligence officer who was alleged and ultimately pleaded guilty to and was convicted of... Offences of uh, a secrecy in nature. Now, even with this release of information last week, there's still not a lot known. Um, you know, for, for example, if you, you take a look at the sentencing remarks, there's a lot of redacted. You know, charge charge one is charge redacted, alleging redacted, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still not a lot of transparency here. But what we know is this is an intelligence officer who uh, had a falling out with his agency, and as I understand it, communicated information on unsecure. Uh, lines um, back to Australia and that um, is what led to him being charged and ultimately uh, sentenced to imprisonment.
2: So from what we can tell he somehow lost his security clearance and he was what appealing or dialoguing with his employer about that decision and in unsecured email correspondence relating to this process he either referred to or perhaps included classified documents in in that un Secured email correspondence—is that what we think happened?
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, with the caveat that obviously there's a lot we don't know. Um, from what we do know, as I understand it, it's not been alleged that Witness J, you know, leaked documents to the media. The, the, you know, this isn't uh, someone who's sought to blown the whistle or, or otherwise go public. It, it's someone who's simply communicated information, but through unsecure methods, and by doing that, gave rise to a risk that that might be, for example, um, intercepted by foreign uh, intelligence.
2: So what did the trial judge in his sentencing remarks have to say about Witness J's state of mind?
1: In the judgment that was released last week, um, I think there's recognition that uh, Witness J was finding this a really difficult period and that was dealing with uh, mental health challenges. There's recognition that the conduct was motivated by a feeling of being mistreated by his agency, and that led to this, um, what's described by the trial judge as a grave lapse of judgment, not malicious in that it wasn't a desire to harm Australia's national security interests, but nonetheless did give rise to that risk.
2: And I think uh, was it the um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court described him as grossly reckless and driven by anger when he sent that information over the unsecured system.
1: Indeed. I think, you know, to the best of our understanding of this case, um, it's clear that, in one respect, this is an ordinary employment dispute between a a spy and their agency. But because of the nature of that, because of the layers of secrecy that surround that, it's given rise to this saga that's dragged on for half a decade now. And look, the other major source
2: of information we have about this uh, case is a public inquiry which was conducted last year by the Independent National Security Legislation Monitor, uh, Grant Donaldson-KC. What did he find and what did we learn from his very important inquiry last year?
1: The Independent National Security Legislation Monitor conducted a really significant inquiry into the Witness J saga on the basis that this was an extraordinary development, uh, as I mentioned, no prior instance that we know of, of a fully secret case taking place in Australia. The Monitor, Grant Donaldson SC, the former Solicitor General in Western Australia, found that this um, level of secrecy was unnecessary, fully closed uh, criminal process uh, shouldn't have happened. And never happen again. So in one respect, this latest small bout of sunshine over this case, this transparency is the culmination of that process. So the the monitor recommended that the sentencing remarks be released and then uh, there was further process around redactions and so on following the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus KC applying to the court for this to be released. So this is a really positive development in one respect. It draws to a close this troubling saga, a case of utmost secrecy, But in other respects, there's still a lot to be done. So the the, the Monitor made a number of law reform recommendations, which the government has accepted in principle but hasn't yet fully carried through. They've also asked the Monitor to undertake a more wide-ranging review of the law that enabled this level of secrecy. That's a law that's been applied in cases like Witness K, Bernard Cleary, the ongoing prosecution of War Crimes, whistleblower David McBride, all cases that have been shrouded in what many, including myself, have have criticised for being unnecessary layers of secrecy, and that review is ongoing right now. So this is a good start, this moment of transparency, but open justice is a critical safeguard of the fundamental rights of all Australians, and we can't stop here. There's much more to be done to ensure that a case like this can never happen again.
2: Kieran Pender, Senior Lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks, Damien. That's all we have time for today. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolya and to technical producer Tim Simons. Now, on whatever podcast platform you might have found us on, please do leave us a review. It helps others find us. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law.